We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Uh, listen, we, uh, we're continuing in our series on the book of Acts this morning. So if you would, turn in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. The entire chapter will be our text this morning. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been walking with Paul and Barnabas as they have embarked on their first missionary journey. If you remember at the, the beginning of Acts chapter 13, they were sent out by the church at Antioch. Verse 2 of chapter 13 says that while the church at Antioch was fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart Paul and Barnabas for this assignment. I'm going to send them out from Antioch to do the work of God's mission abroad. And so that's what the church does. They are obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they pray for them, and then they send them out. And as Paul and Barnabas go out, we really see a continuation of what we've already been seeing throughout the book of Acts, that as the gospel goes forward, as it gains more and more ground in the world, simultaneously, opposition to the gospel intensifies. God's work of redemption is paralleled by persecution every step of the way. In chapter 13, we saw that this was the case in Cyprus and Pisidia. And as we move into chapter 14 today, we're going to see this play out in other locations as well, particularly in Iconium and in Lystra. And here's the main thing I want you to get out of this. This is sort of the main point I want to impress upon you today as we look at Acts chapter 14. That is that the world is a spiritually contested place, but victory belongs to the living God. The world is a spiritually contested place, but victory belongs to the living God. We'll unpack this in three parts, and in each part, by looking at the example of Paul and Barnabas, we'll see that God's victory over the powers of darkness is a done deal. It's not up for grabs. No, God demonstrates this over and over again, that his victory is a sure thing because his gospel is invincible. So let's begin at the start of chapter 14. Begin in verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So in these verses, 
Paul and Barnabas show that they are resilient in declaring the gospel of grace. That's what we see in this first part of chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas are resilient in declaring the gospel of grace. We actually see this playing out in some very interesting ways. After what happened in Pisidia in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas travel east to Iconium, where verse 1 of chapter 14 says that they spoke in such a way. They spoke in such a manner that it resulted in a lot of people coming to faith in Christ. This is a diverse group of people. It's comprised of Greeks as well as Jews. But not everyone from the Jewish community is thrilled about what Paul and Barnabas have to say. We're told that there's a group of unbelieving Jews. The unbelieving Jews begin to stir up their Gentile neighbors. In other words, their their non-Jewish neighbors. They do this by poisoning their minds. That's what it says in verse 2. So while there are many who have believed in the message of salvation, it's also true at the same time that Paul and Barnabas must suffer the hatred of those who have been turned against them. Now normally, sort of the natural human response to this, the instinctive response that we would expect from really anyone in a situation like this, is fight or flight. Fight or flight. That's, that's what human beings are, are hardwired to do. It's sort of built into our biology and our psychology. You either get out of Dodge, you leave town until all the trouble blows over, or you stay and fight. You get even. It's eye for an eye. It's payback time. If you're going to fight dirty, then why shouldn't I? But Paul and Barnabas do not choose fight, nor do they choose flight. Instead, they go with a third option. Of course, it's not the most natural option, but it is the supernatural option. Instead of fight or flight, Paul and Barnabas choose steadfast resilience. Steadfast resilience. Look at what the text says. It says that the unbelieving Jews, in verse 3, poisoned the minds of the Gentiles and turned them against the brothers, so they remained. So they remained. The fact that verse 3 starts with the word so... Is very telling. It says a great deal to us. It doesn't say, but they remained. It says, so they remained. In other words, Paul and Barnabas stay in Iconium as a result of the opposition, not in spite of it. Friends, this shows resilience. It's the kind of resilience that comes from a strong sense of purpose. You don't stay in a situation like that if you don't have the fortitude of heart to withstand serious opposition. But not only that, not only that, the the more fundamental thing here is that you don't stay in a situation like that apart from the conviction that opposition, persecution, these things mean that the gospel has touched a nerve. If you're being actively sabotaged at every turn, it probably means that you're stepping on the toes of the kingdom of darkness. Recently, I came across a statement from a church historian, and I think it's wise for us to consider this statement 
in light of what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 14. This historian says that throughout the history of the Christian church, instances of intense persecution have been the birth pangs and growing pains of those movements that have cleansed society and wrought deliverance to the soul of man. He says such movements are often cradled and reared in an atmosphere of insolence, contempt, and abuse. Listen to me, friends, and let's be clear about this. God is seeking people for His mission who can remain resilient in the face of opposition. Because the work of bringing the gospel to a lost and broken world, that work is not for the faint of heart. It's a work that's full of difficulty and danger. And in order for us to find the strength we need for that difficult, dangerous work, we're going to have to place all our confidence in the gospel. Resilient Christians who go into dark places for the mission of God have the gospel as their supreme confidence. The victory of God in Christ is where we are called to rest our hope. And when that happens, when, when all our confidence is in the gospel, we can start to view opposition not as a sign that we need to stop or slow down, but as a sign that we might just be getting somewhere here. You see, opposition to the gospel is not a setback. No, it's a, a birth pang. It's a growing pain. Chances are it means something is about to happen. Chances are it means an outpouring of grace might be right around the corner. So when you encounter opposition to the gospel, keep pressing forward. Because God's not done yet. In fact, it is possible that he's just getting started. I read the other day in a book, the author of this book says that if we're going to be Christians who bring the renewing grace of God to our generation we are going to have to step outside our comfort zones and break away from the grip of the myth that life is going wrong when we are not feeling good. Paul and Barnabas show us what it's like to be free from that myth. They respond to resistance there in Iconium. They respond to it with steadfast resilience. And I'd like to tell you that for Paul and Barnabas, this means that things get better, right? At some point, it'd be nice to say that things start looking up for these beleaguered apostles. No, I, I, I can't say that because it's not true. Because things for Paul and Barnabas, they only go from bad to worse, which goes to show you that when you choose the option of steadfast resilience, there is no promise that things will get better. There's no guarantee that things will get easier. I mean, the longer that Paul and Barnabas stay in Iconium, the more intense the opposition against them grows, and it, it reaches a boiling point. Verse 5. Paul and Barnabas are in serious danger. An attempt is made on their lives, and so they're out of options here. They have to flee. They have to leave Iconium. And yet, even as they flee, even as they find themselves on the run, 
their resilience remains unabated. Look at verse 7. It says that when they went to Laconia, they continued to preach the gospel there. Even with everything that's happened, they continue to preach the gospel. They don't let up. They don't back down. They don't start questioning their call. Instead, they are resilient in declaring the gospel of God's grace. Let's keep reading. Let's keep moving in our text, starting at verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Let's stop there. So not only are Paul and Barnabas resilient in declaring the gospel of grace, they are also insistent that God alone be worshipped. That's what we see in the second part of the story. Paul and Barnabas are insistent that God alone be worshipped. Just a few minutes ago, I told you what the main point of today's sermon is. And in that main point, I made the claim that the world is a spiritually contested place. If you look across the landscape of human cultures and and civilizations, you quickly see that this is the case. There is a wide array of philosophies and worldviews to choose from, different interpretations of reality, competing visions, what it means to live a good life, rival concepts of the divine. And all of these, all of these philosophies, all of these worldviews, they're contending with each other. 
And as Christians, we understand that when it comes down to it, all this contending is actually spiritual in nature. These are clashing spiritual realities. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness are in perpetual conflict. They really are at war. And in many ways, this is a war for human souls. If you've been around the church for the past few decades, you maybe have heard of what has been dubbed as the worship wars. The worship wars. If you don't know what that is, I'll define it for you by saying that this is a debate about what style of music or production or aesthetics that the church should use for its congregational worship. The worship wars, so-called, have largely centered around questions like, should we use pipe organs or guitars? Should we use hymnals or projector screens? Now, listen, in what I'm about to say, I don't want to be overly dismissive about questions like that because they're not unimportant. But at the same time, I think that it should be said that that is not the worship war we should be most concerned about. No, there are bigger things at stake. Acts 14 reminds us of this because in these verses that we just read, we are seeing a real, live worship war. It's a war of what has claim on your soul. Is it the living God or is it something else? That's the war that's really raging all around us all the time. And it's what Paul and Barnabas come up against in the city of Lystra. The people there mistake them for gods. When they see that Paul has healed the disability of a crippled man, they automatically, reflexively jump to the conclusion that Zeus and Hermes, Greco-Roman gods, have visited them. This tells you a lot about the way the people in Lystra viewed the world. For them, there was this expectation That the gods could show up in disguise at any moment and you had better be ready to welcome them. There was actually a story about this that the Lystrans would have been very familiar with. The story goes that Zeus and Hermes actually show up in the hill country near Lystra and they're disguised as human beings needing a place to stay for the night. Zeus and Hermes, they go from house to house to house, and at house after house after house, the door is slammed in their face. No one welcomes them. No one takes them in, except for one very poor elderly couple who use what little they have to welcome Zeus and Hermes into their broken down little shack. And I don't have time to get into all the details of how the story unfolds. Suffice it to say that the story ends with Zeus and Hermes revealing themselves and then wiping out everyone and everything there in the hill country of Lystra. I mean, everyone is destroyed for their inhospitality. Except, of course, for the old man and his wife. So you can see how that story is very much in the background of what's playing out here in Lystra. There's a very clear moral to that story, is there not? Be ready to welcome the gods or else. 
And Paul, his miracle, it unearths all of this. I mean, just look at what happens. Look at the people's response. Verse 11. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The crowds are emphatic about this. Zeus and Hermes have returned to us. They have returned to Lystra. And you can feel the chaos of this moment brewing. It's it's ratcheting up. It's sheer pandemonium. Everyone's in a panic because they're all thinking, oh man, we better do something quick or we're all done for. Verse 13, look at the priest of Zeus. It says, in no time he has a sacrifice ready to go. He comes sniveling and trembling and terrified. Here's your sacrifice, Mr. Zeus, sir. Please don't kill us. It would almost be a little bit comical if it wasn't so tragic. I mean, your heart, it has to break for these people because you can see, you can tell that their worldview has them living on edge all the time. It's like they have to sleep with one eye open because their gods are so easily agitated and offended. And Paul and Barnabas, they, they look at the situation that's unfolding in front of their eyes and they, they can see it for what it is. They recognize that the city of Lystra is spiritually contested space. For Paul and Barnabas, this isn't just a different viewpoint. It's not a mere difference in perspective. Like, you guys have your beliefs. We have ours. We can just kind of like live and let live. We can leave each other alone about that. I mean, that's what people from our culture would probably do in a situation like this. That sort of spiritual relativism is ingrained into our minds from the moment that we're born. But for Paul and Barnabas, that's not going to work. That's not why they're there. For Paul and Barnabas, there's a real urgency here. These are people who have been taken captive in the worship war. These are people here in Lystra who are deceived by a religious system that enslaves And destroys human souls. And Paul wants them to see this for what it is. So he says to them, turn from these vain things. We have good news to share. And it begins with this. Turn from these vain things. You want to worship us? I mean, look at us. We're just men. We are subject to the same nature and the same passions as you are. So don't worship us. No, turn from these vain things and worship the living God. You think Zeus is something because he's the God of thunder? Let me introduce you to the God of creation. The God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That is the real God. That is the God who lives. But the Lystrans, they're not ready to hear that. Verse 18, the Lystrans could hardly be restrained from offering sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. It's like the entire city has religious tunnel vision. And because of that, they were not able to hear the news about the living God. But then notice the very next verse. Verse 19, we see that the unbelieving Jewish leaders show up. They come from Antioch and Iconium, and it says that they were able to persuade the crowds to turn against Paul and Barnabas. So do you notice the contrast there? 
I mean, notice the, the disconnect between verse 18 and verse 19. In verse 18, Paul and Barnabas cannot get through to the Lystrans with the news about the living God. But in verse 19, the unbelieving Jews come to town with a narrative about Paul and Barnabas. And with this narrative, they have no trouble getting through. The Lystrans are all too happy to listen. They're all too happy to pay attention to the narrative instead of the news. I actually think there's a really important lesson for us here in these verses. The lesson is this, that what has your attention says a lot about you. What has your attention says a lot about you. It says a great deal about your spiritual condition. It's possible that you're never more spiritually exposed than in what occupies you because it reveals what is most precious to you. This means that in an important sense, attention is worship. Attention is worship because your attention instinctively seizes upon that which is most worthy to you and the things that are unworthy, well, those are easy to dismiss. It's easy to set those aside and not pay attention. And considering this today should be a very sobering thing for us because it's, it's true what John Calvin said, that the human heart is a factory of idols. It's just the reality. So I need to ask you today, as we consider these things, what has your attention? What have you been paying attention to? I mean, if it's true that attention is worship, where is your attention? What are you beholding each and every day? Is it the living God? Is it His victory in Christ Jesus? Or is it something else? Some lesser glory that cannot possibly sustain the weight of your worship. Friends, don't buy into the lie that this world of broken promises has what you need the most. Made by man gods cannot satisfy made for God souls. So instead of settling for your idols, I want to invite you, come And welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and gaze upon the glory of His victory over sin and death. Give His gospel of grace your undivided attention. And see how His death and resurrection can put the broken pieces of your life back together. Yes, this world, friends, is a spiritually contested place that wants to make claims on your life. But there is only one who has the authority to claim you. And He is the King of kings who can come into your life and smash your pet idols so that He alone can claim the throne of your soul. So I plead with you today, turn from your idols. Turn from whatever counterfeit God has your attention and behold Jesus Christ, the living one, the one who died but is now alive forevermore. And because that is who He is, He can snatch you from the jaws of death and He can place you on the path of His victory today. That's what happens with Paul. Look back at verse 19. 
Paul was on death's door. People had stoned him and they dragged him out of the city. They had left him for dead. You know, verse 19, that's a low point in the story. And maybe that's kind of where you are today. Maybe that's where you find yourself. Your story feels a lot like it's at a low point. You have this sense that maybe you've been left for dead. You've been following Jesus for a while. You've been trying to to live for him, and yet your life just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. It's like you're, you're drifting out into an abyss, and you can't stop yourself from drifting. And even as I say this, I mean, there are probably specific things that are coming to your mind, things that have been weighing heavily on you, things that are painful for you, things that you, don't, you almost don't want to admit it to yourself. Maybe it has to do with a relationship that you had hoped would get better, but just doesn't seem to be working out. Maybe there's someone that you've been sharing the gospel with and you've been praying for their salvation, and yet the more you share and the more you pray, the more hostile they get. It's like you, you go into the same room as them and they can't even stand to be there with you. It's reaching that point. Maybe it's mental health, a struggle there. Depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. These things are pushing you to the brink. And whatever it is, it's got you wondering, okay, where's the victory? Where is it? Like, if my life is found in Christ, and if Christ is supposed to be a victorious king who reigns over everything, why do I feel defeated? Why do I feel so defeated and discouraged? The Bible actually tells us it's going to feel this way sometimes. It's easy to assume that following Jesus will make your life better and easier. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that's true. A lot of the time, though, that's not how it goes. A lot of the time, following Jesus presses you into even greater hardship. I mean, 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us this. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter's simply restating what I just said a minute ago, that what you pay attention to really matters. And it matters an awful lot when you're suffering. Because trials have a way of disorienting us. And so it can become easy to fixate all your attention on the discomfort you're experiencing in your suffering. That's sort of the natural thing that we want to do. But Peter is saying, don't do that. Don't let your trials monopolize your attention. Don't sit around and and dwell on them and feel sorry for yourself. No, instead, see to it that the glory of Jesus Christ is the greatest occupation of your heart. Dwell, first and foremost, on how you can exalt His name in the midst of what you're facing. You can do that by following the example of the psalmist in Psalm chapter, chapter 16 where he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Friends, that's where your victory 
is found. When the glory of Christ has your undivided attention, even in the midst of great hardship, your joy will be untouchable because it's found in Him, not in your circumstances. The Apostle Paul, he demonstrates this in stunning fashion. Let's look at the rest of chapter 14. We'll pick it up in verse 20. We'll reread that verse and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, when they gathered about Paul, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So here at the end of chapter 14, we see that Paul is fervent about enduring for the mission of the kingdom. Paul is fervent about enduring for the mission of of the kingdom. God snatches him from the jaws of death. Paul is basically resurrected here. That's the language of verse 20. It's, it's resurrection language. Paul rose up from death. And with the cuts and the bruises still fresh on his body, Paul limps back into the city. He limps back into Lystra. And for the glory of God, he preaches the victory of Christ. And he goes to the next town. He goes to Derby, And he does it again. And notice that Paul doesn't even stop there. Instead, he makes his way back through every place that they have visited. He parades the victory of Christ through Lystra to Iconium, through Pisidia, and all the way back to Antioch where it started. And all along the way, Paul is strengthening and encouraging those whom he has led to Jesus. He's telling the churches something that he knows from experience. That through many hardships, we will enter the kingdom of God. It's verse 22. And we look at that. We look at Paul's endurance here. And it's very natural for us to want to know something. Paul, how'd you do it? What's the secret? Like one minute you're dead, okay? And then the next minute you're back in the city preaching the gospel to the very people who just tried to kill you? Like where do you find the strength for something like that? I think if Paul were here today with us, he might tell us that the secret to faithful endurance has everything to do with what occupies your heart. 
It all comes down to what consumes your thoughts. Because remember, attention is worship. That's essentially what Paul tells the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, There's nothing, there is absolutely nothing I have not counted as loss because all I desire, all I care about is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. So Paul tells them, I will gladly suffer the loss of all things, even my own life, if it means that ultimately I gain Christ. So if you want to know what kept Paul going, look at what had his attention. And then ask yourself, what has mine? What have I been paying attention to? Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.